safetyfm.com with Jay Allen. Changing safety cultures, one broadcast and one podcast at a time. Well, hello and welcome to another episode of Safety FM with Jay Allen. I hope everything is good and grand inside of your neck of the woods. And yes, today is Tuesday, October the 17th. As I've told you in the past, we try to keep these as close to real time as possible, um, just so you know. So I am recording this on the morning of the 17th. Now, I'm going to tell you, I did sit back today and actually was able to have a conversation with Michelle Johnson. And we're going to go into some information here. And we're going to start talking about her career, but... The conversation does take a turn and going into something that's very important, near and dear to her heart. And I want you to take a listen to this because I think it's such an important conversation. And I'm going to come back on the back end and we'll talk a little bit there. So let's not wait too long and let's start off with our conversation with Michelle Johnson here on Safety FM with Jay Allen. Let's get it started right now. So I always like to start off with the great portion of how did you get into the industry? And then we'll get into some of the other fine details of the things that we really want to discuss. So how I got into the utility industry was um, kind of a long story, but the short of it was I, I, got laid off from work. I had to find a job. I found a temporary job with a major corporation working as a contractor for utilities. And that kind of turned into a permanent thing. And uh, one day a utility customer noticed me and said, Hey, how would you like to come to work for us? And that's kind of how it all started. So. So if you don't mind me asking, how long ago was that? That was 1993, so 30 years. 1993. So you've been doing this for quite some time, then. If you, I mean, yeah. I mean that in the best of ways. I, I don't mean. I don't mean yeah, that. no, 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 no. I, I jokingly say all the time, I'll be 59 and a half in April. All bets are off after that. <laughs> Very nice. So, I, but I love what I do now. You know, I transitioned over to the hop world after thir- almost 30 years in safety. And um, I, it's not that I didn't dis that I disliked safety. It's just so much of a thankless job, and compliance can be so difficult, especially in the construction world. So it was it was a refreshing change for me. So as as you reference that real quick, you say that it's kind of a thankless job. You've been in, inside of the hop world. So what were you doing before? What did what did your versionality of safety before you heard of human organizational performance? What did it look like? Well, I had, you know, I had heard of human and human performance, you know, years ago, obviously, and had gone to the HPRCT or whatever they're calling it these days. <laughs> that back, back before it was in Colorado Springs all the time, it was in Jackson Hole that year, I think, and and you know was very involved in human performance um, and safety. Uh, the department was safety and performance improvement, and. Um, so I was kind of doing a little bit of both. And my style with safety always was, show me what you're talking about. You know, the, the, the crew would come and say, we have this problem with fall protection or whatever. And my style was always go out on the floor, show me what you're doing. Show me how you get the work done um, and to try to problem solve together. But um, 
I was working out actually in New Mexico and felt like I needed to get back home because I had a mom that was getting older and my daughter had had a son that had significant um, developmental and medical uh, disabilities. So I came back to the Southeast. And when I did that, I landed myself after about a year in the plant, I landed myself in a compliance corporate role. And that was strictly regulatory interface and writing procedures and hold on. Trying are, to are, make are, you, are, are you trying to tell me you, you can't, it's impossible to. So. Are, are you telling me that you tried to sign up for this job for a regulatory job? I mean, I, I have a, you know, a high stress level when I, when I hear something like that. Well, I'm, <laughs> I, this is, this is, Maybe a little bit arrogant, but when it comes to procedure writing, I'm, I'm pretty good at it. <laughs> and I know how to include all the regulatory things and still write them in a way that they're easy to understand and user friendly, but that still doesn't make them perfect. Right. <laughs> so um, I, I just, yeah, I did kind of sign up for it in a way. I agreed to come to corporate actually to do process safety management and things just kind of changed. And I wound up in what I called procedure land. Very nice. So l- let me ask that. So how is the transition for you from from New Mexico going all the way to the southeast? Because, I mean, there's a landscape different there for sure. Oh, I, you know, I grew up outside of Nashville, so oh, okay. I missed the green. I did not realize how much I missed the green until I came home and went, wow, everything is so green. Um, and I'd worked all over the place. I'd worked in Washington State, which the center of Washington State is very arid as well. Um, I'd been international uh, some, so I, I, I was glad to get back home. I do miss some of the... I miss the, a, lot, a lot of the native population we worked with in New Mexico. I miss the views we have from our little house on the hill and the, you know, you could just see forever. So I miss some of those things, but it's nice to be back home. It's a lot nicer to be four hours from the grandkids instead of a day's flight. Yeah, I mean, and that's a, that's a world of difference because I, I can tell you by living away from the family where you have to jump on flights to be able to get someplace, it is not an easy transition. Uh, my wife and I live probably about a couple of hours from her parents, and it, if something does come up, it makes it relatively easy where, where my parents live. It's definitely a flight or two away before you can even manage to get there. Yeah. Well, I, w- I want to reference something, and you mentioned something earlier, and this was a conversation that we had had previously, and I really wanted to, to touch on some of it. You did mention your your grandson. And right. I, w- I would like, to, for, if you don't mind, to kind of take a little bit of a deeper dive on, on what had occurred um, with him and some of the stuff. That so I have to tell on. you, I am very so, glad that um, Michelle came on when, and described the Evan story about her grandson, Evan. That was and she did go into a lot of actually. detail. And, and listen, about, it's one of these things that I'm glad you know, that there when, was so was much born, of the conversation little and little to listen to the impact that Evan's life they, they had on this and, world. And he now, if you want to find out more information, if you go to teamevan.net, that's teamevan.net, T-E-A-M-E-V-A-N.net, to find out more information or if you want to get involved with what Michelle was talking about here on the show today. I really do appreciate your time and taking a listen to what we have going on, because it's always important. Listen, you want to get involved with Team Evan, like I said, teamevan.net, that way we can move forward. Thank you for always being the best part 
part of Safety FM, and that is the listener, because without you, it doesn't make a lot of sense to do what we do around here. And um, I've been your safety manager and host, Jay Allen. And until next time, he was unable to talk or walk or eventually even unable unable to feed on his own, had to be uh, fed through a little tube in his belly. But um, we spent, you know, lots of time and lots of resources trying to figure out, you know, everything that was going on and even had doctors from John Hopkins interested in what, you know, exactly was going on because a lot of his stuff was a case study, really. You know, why, why is this? This is a child that by all definitions of science should not be here. And here we have this little miracle baby. And um, anyway, after we got through the shock of the diagnosis, and I'm not going to pretend that it was, you know, all sunshine and rainbows. It was not. But once we got past the shock of the diagnosis and kind of just sat back and started paying attention, we realized how amazing he was um, in his own right without the ability of what we would call quote unquote normal. Well, let me, let me ask you a question real quick and I apologize for interrupting, but you said that one doctor referenced to have a scan. How far, how many, how many months has he had he been alive or years at this particular point when the doctors referenced of having the scan? Three months, just three months. Um, this was almost four months. It was October and Evan was born in July. And so Evan had had an incredible pediatrician and his pediatrician was very thorough and um, one of those pediatricians that did work overseas and very generous with his time. And he, he said, let's do a scan. And uh, as soon as he got the news, he didn't, he didn't call my kids. He called, he uh, obviously he called them, but he met them in the chapel and broke the news and, and immediately started working on every resource that he could think of to make sure that Evan got as much as much therapy as he could get up front. Because there's even a program called Babies Can't Wait because they realized that the sooner a baby or a child gets into therapy, regardless of the diagnosis, the better chance their brain has to rewire itself and and uh, work what more what we would call normally. So you made, you made some references there about about this program that was available. So how soon are they able to get him in? How, how, how soon are they able to get Evan into the program? I mean, was it a, an immediate thing or is there kind of a still even a small wait, wait of time before they're able to do anything? Well, within a couple of months, he was in, you know, into some therapies and things. Um, the problem is, is that what you the other thing that you realize, and, um, you know, it's my kids going through all of this, but I'm helping all that I can the, what you realize off the bat is two hardworking parents with good insurance is still not enough. It Because insurance will deny for whatever reasons they deny for. I'm not going to pretend to be an insurance expert, but um, they'll pay for a pill in pill form, a medication in pill form, but they won't pay for it in liquid form. Well, how do you give a child who can't eat a pill? So there, it's constantly a fight. So my daughter was constantly in the system, navigating the system to get every program grant, anything that she could get that would cover what insurance would not. 
So as as you're seeing this and going through this, because you, believe me, it, it sounds like you're a full a full participant. This almost sounds like it is a an additional job. It's an additional full time job. Seeing okay, the insurance providers will do this, will not do that, and you're able to to work with it somehow. I mean, I can't imagine the level of rejection that's coming back and forth. So what are these interactions like? I mean, what are we talking about? timeline are we talking months on end in regards of disputing back and forth and because this is something that's a we'll say a newer diagnosis something that you know they're saying that it could be almost a level of a case study i would imagine you're getting all kinds of denials going forward or am i looking at this in the wrong way no 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 every i mean i i can't count the calls i got um of my daughter frustrated or in tears because they wouldn't pay for They pay for a so here's an example. They'll pay for a wheelchair for a six year old based on what a six year old child, you know, should be size wise. Um, And but Evan's growth restricted. He he was growth restricted from the get go. So he is, you know, four years old, but he's the size of a two year old. So they want to pay for a wheelchair for a four year old that's going to be no good. For the, for the child that is the size of a two-year-old. Um, medications, well, okay, we can do this medication and we can compound this medication, but that'll be $700, please. So there you are at the pharmacy saying, do I get the medication my child needs or do I pay my mortgage? Which one do I do? And they always, you know, it always works out. It, it does always work out, but it, it can be months of fighting back and forth and, financial stress and worrying what you're going to do next before the insurance companies and the doctors can all get together and say, okay, this is what it takes to get this approved. Um, There were even groups of special needs moms who would say, well, I got the wrong size diapers that you need and you got the wrong size diapers that I need. Let's just trade and don't fight the system. So it almost it almost becomes like a community where people are just saying, okay, let's just help each other out opposed to, you know, Opposed to fighting the system, as you're saying, but it's yeah. a community that becomes, okay, we can help each other out by what's approved here, not approved there, and being able to move forward. Am I seeing that correctly? Exactly. It's just, okay, what have you got that I might need? And you just do a trade. So at this particular point, is Evan still in in the hospital or are they, or are they sending him back and forth home with the things that are going on? No, he was never hospitalized nope. for the... Um, for the stroke itself, he was um, just going back and forth to appointments. But from the time of diagnosis, it was neurologist, endocrinologist. I mean, obviously orthopedics, every specialist, eye specialist, you know, every specialist you could dream of and trying to navigate all of that as well and get all the doctors on the same page and, you know, uh, trying to navigate appointments so you could have an appointment day instead of, 15 appointments scheduled over two weeks. I mean, you still have jobs, right? You've got to go to work. And so there was just all of that navigating back and forth between the different specialists. And that took about probably a year and a half to really calm down and kind of smooth out to where it became normal checkups. I can't, I can't even fathom what you're going through at this particular time and the family's going through. So what ends up taking place once they're able to see him and start I guess, really diagnosing a little bit further the things that are happening. Well, so then, you know, that's when the 
I would say the real work began to say, okay, let's try these leg braces or this stander so he can get in different positions and stand on his own and um, different therapies and water therapies and, and uh, you know, trying to get him possibly working with switches and pushing switches. And so that's kind of when all of that began. And, and I think I said this um, when we spoke earlier, you know, we when you're sitting there in shock with that diagnosis, you're, you're trying to figure out what do I need to fix? But after a little bit of just watching him and his impact on those around him, you realized he was fixing us. And we just kind of sat back and let him do what he could do. Um, it, we, we realized Evan could do anything he wanted to do as long as we allowed him to do it differently. So tell me, tell me how you're able to, to manage that, especially at first, because, you know, especially when you're, you're interacting with somebody who, who has, you know, has a medical condition, you're trying to be so extremely careful and you want to make sure that they're doing it what we would deem the proper way. So how are you able to manage that go at that particular point in time going, okay, we're going to let him do it his way because it's the correct way for him. And not being able to, you know, I, I don't want to say helicopter parent, but it almost comes across that way. Well, yeah, I mean, obviously you have to have pretty um, rigorous oversight because a, a medication mistake. There's all kinds of things that could, you know, end his life. So you have to be very, very careful. And things as simple as um, Evan played on a a baseball team, an inclusive baseball team uh, run by an organization called the, well, not run by the Miracle League, but it's called the Miracle League. And so it's for kids that can't play traditional baseball. And something as simple as turning his wheelchair over to a buddy to push him around the bases is nerve wracking, right? You've got to let him out of your sight and let go for those kind of things. But I, Evan was given to the right mama. My daughter was was and still is an incredible caregiver. And she just basically learned that, you know, there's some things you got to let go and there's some things that she needs to maintain rigorous oversight of. And she balanced that so well. And I I just kind of watched her. Um, The other gift we got was Eli, who's my oldest grandson is Evan's cousin was born three months before Evan watch a kid interact with a kid and you will learn a lot about the way the world is supposed to be. And he, as far as Eli was concerned, there was no difference. That's such a beautiful thing to hear. As you mentioned that, because I think that sometimes as we, I I, I don't want to say change the way that a child looks at the world. It's that naivety that a child looks at the world that we sometimes forget to appreciate. They don't have the bias yet. Right. You know, they just don't have the bias yet. And um, so Eli, to this day, he's he's 14. He's at that age when the world should be ruining him a little bit, right? <laughs> and um, he is, to this day, kind and open-hearted and non-judgmental and, and accepting of all, you know, races, abilities, difference. He just is this incredibly accepting kid. And it's because he had Evan for six years and learned that at such a young age. So tell us a little bit more because you just referenced that there that he had Evan for six years. So what continues going on with Evan during, during the time we kind of left off at the four years of age, what exactly is he going through? I mean, we, we, you referenced the wheelchair 
that, you know, he's the size of a two-year-old. They're trying to give him a, a wheelchair the size of a four-year-old. So what are kind of the next steps of things that are going on? So, yeah, it, the, the continuation of every medical battle you can imagine. And um, then in Evan's fifth year, or maybe sixth, sixth year, yeah, he was six. He had to have a major surgery on his hips because he the, the stretching and the muscle tone and the spasming had caused a, a condition where he needed to have his hip flexors basically relaxed and it involved severing the femur and all kinds of horrible, horrible surgeries on his legs. Um, really awesome, just incredible orthopedic doctor that helped uh, Jennifer navigate through that decision to do that. And, and he was in a half body cast and even that he just was a champ. I mean, very little crying as long as you could get him. He loved to be outdoors. So as long as you could, we would lay him in his wagon and a bunch of pillows and, and I'd take him on walks around the neighborhood. He was happy. And so feet and ankles. And um, in January, he, he got a pretty bad cold and Jennifer had taken him into the doctor and to the, I think they even made a visit to the ER and his, his lungs were clear, but she was saying, was he just, just so much gunk come up and a child that is not mobile cannot cough and get things up like a child that is mobile. Their lungs just don't quite work the same. And so she called me one week and on a, and um, said, this is really random, but we're going to be in Atlanta. Do you want to meet us for lunch? And that was a, on a Sunday and I live half hours away. And I said, yeah, so two and a half hour trip I make for lunch. And, um, and uh, I meet him at the Cheesecake Factory and I just looked at him and I said, he's, he's really not feeling good, is he? And she said, no, he's not. He's just been off. And so we had lunch and I hugged him up and put him back in the car. And that was the last time. So that Wednesday, Jennifer called and he had, um, she had woke, tried to wake him up and he was non-responsive. And um, she had tried to obviously do life-saving measures, um, called the ambulance. And um, they didn't, they said it didn't look good. And so she called me that morning and, um, if they had taken him in the ambulance and let me know that it didn't look good. And surely um, about an hour later, um, he coded again and she let him go. I don't, e- I don't even know what to say. Uh, uh, it's, I, I hear, I hear the pain in your voice uh, as you describe this. And I, and I, he- and I hear, you know, just some of the stuff that he had to go through just to, to be a normal child. But a happy child, it sounds like. It's just, I don't even know what to say. But it was a blessing, as you continue to say, in regards of the time that you were able to spend with him. And Oh, absolutely. And you have, and I remember a few weeks ago when you and I were talking, you were referencing that you were bringing attention to what was going on with Evan. Can you, can you tell us a little bit about that, on what the work that you've been doing ever since the passing of Evan? Yeah, so actually it started, um, well, let me back up just a little bit. I want to say one little thing about grief here. 
you know, people, Evan's been gone since 2016. So he's been gone longer than we had him. And, and people try to put grief in this pretty little bell curve and it's really not, it is all over the place. And, and I always say it doesn't necessarily get better, but it does get different. So if anybody happens to listen to this and they wonder what's wrong with them, there's nothing wrong with you. Just keep on keeping on. It it gets different. It just doesn't get better. Um, So um, before Evan passed, actually, we were trying to, the kids were trying to get a a handicap accessible vehicle to get his wheelchair in and out. And they are astronomically expensive and they, they got, they got lucky and I say lucky, just fortunate enough to be put in touch with the family who had lost their son and uh, were getting rid of a handicap accessible van for a steal of a price. And so they were able to get one, but the the ramp needed work. And even that was going to be three or $4,000. And a friend of mine and I, her name's Michelle also, she she and I sewed tote bags and tutus and all kinds of crazy stuff, trying to raise a little money just to help the kids. And I realized this is ridiculous. What do families do that don't have the financial means? And and how do you know how do these kids survive? And um, how do they get what they need? And so anyway, we we got the ramp taken care of, and I was talking to some coworkers about it. And at a, at a conference, a safety conference, I think. And, um, and one of them said, well, let's do a golf tournament. And so that turned into a nonprofit. And that would have been 2015, actually, that we kind of got it turned into a nonprofit and got all official with the IRS, or maybe, maybe it was 2016, the year Evan passed. And, and then when Evan passed, I, I just didn't know what I wanted to do with it. I, I was like, you know, I was, I was obviously grieving and, and it felt like doing something attached to Evan was just dragging up old wounds for my daughter. And I just wasn't in son-in-law and I just wasn't super sure what we wanted to do with it. But as I, as I had time to grieve and reflect, I remembered, you know, his, his visitation at the funeral home and, how all of these people came out. And I think I mentioned this to you on the podcast and this, this funeral home that's got well, several rooms in it is full of people there to see Evan that are lined up snaking through the different rooms out the door. And there's police directing traffic on the street for a six year old little boy. And so once I got over myself a little bit and I said, what excuse do I have? He had, he made such an impact in six short years. I have no excuse. I have a perfectly abled body and I need to use it to make a difference. And I decided at that minute that I was going to keep raising money. Even if it was only $500 a year, I was going to keep raising money to help families who were going through some of the same things we were. And the other thing I realized during that time was um, some family friends of my daughter's had stepped up during that time. And before the kids got to the funeral home, they had already been there and basically paid for the funeral. 
so my kids didn't have to worry about it. And the peace that they had from that, even though they were lucky, Evan had some insurance because um, he had been added to the policy at birth before the, the medical diagnosis was was known. But there are so many families who have uninsurable kids that they, they have and they have to bury them. And it's expensive, even when the funeral homes work with you. So that's what we do now. We try to, number one, bring awareness. Kids have strokes, too, and uh, bring awareness to that. And number two, bring awareness to different is not less. (laughs) And so we support end-of-life expenses, and we support inclusive sports and communities because Evan had such a good time on Miracle League. And then also those medical expenses that don't get reimbursed by insurance it's amazing just to hear how evan was able to bring a community together just listening to what you're saying in regards to the impact that he had overall i mean just i mean from police officers to people helping pay for the funeral itself and then now you're doing the stuff that you're doing to be able to assist other people yeah, it's, um, you know, I, I fully admit that there's a part of it that's probably a little bit selfish because it gives purpose to the grief. It makes it makes me feel like there's a reason um, when when, you know, when you're standing at a cemetery looking at a headstone for a six year old child, it is hard to wrap your head around any purpose or reason, no matter how many times you do it. But there is a reason here. And it's it's Evan's reason and he gets all the credit and we've been doing this now since at least 2015, maybe 2016 um, for the official nonprofit. But the first golf tournament was in 15. We have not had one rain out. We, it's always been well supported. Um, This year we rate in Raleigh, we raised more money than we've ever raised in a single day. Um, It just, and it, it just comes in at the times you least expect it. You know, a, a PayPal donation all of a sudden for $1,500 that you didn't expect to somebody you reached out to three months ago and figured that they just weren't going to donate. And it just, it reinforces it every time. And I just always say he is, he is up there watching saying, watch this. And so we just keep on doing it. There's times I want to quit. I'm not going to lie, um, but I can't. Well, if people want to find out more information, is there a website that they can go to or is there some place where they can contact you directly to find out more? Sure. It's teamevan2009 at gmail.com. And our website is um, having some little technical difficulties, but it is www.teamevan.org. Um, so, um but yeah, I mean, the, 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 the Gmail is always working. And uh, as we get the website kind of, we, you know, we, we're trying to do everything ourselves, literally, and this is not an exaggeration, 99.99% of everything we raise goes back. We're completely volunteer. The only administrative cost we have is insurance. We pay liability insurance. Um, but the other costs are just associated with the fundraising we have and every cent goes back. So if anybody wants to develop a website, I'll take that help too, because I've been trying to do it and I'm not, I'm not website savvy. 
Well, Michelle, I really do appreciate you coming on and talking about this. It's such a, it's such an important aspect. I really do appreciate it. And we'll make sure to put the website and the email in the show notes. Thanks again. I appreciate it. Thank you. You have a great day. So I have to tell you, I am very glad that Michelle came on and described the story about her grandson, Evan. And she did go into a lot of detail. And listen, it's one of these things that I'm glad that there was so much of the conversation and to listen to the impact that Evan's life had on this world. Now, if you want to find out more information, if you go to teamevan.net, that's teamevan.net, T-E-A-M-E-V-A-N.net to find out more information or if you want to get involved with what Michelle was talking about here on the show today. I really do appreciate your time and taking a listen to what we have going on because it's always important. Listen, if you want to get involved with Team Evan, like I said, teamevan.net. That way we can move forward. Thank you for always being the best part of Safety FM, and that is the listener because without you, it doesn't make a lot of sense to do what we do around here. I've been your safety manager and host, Jay Allen, and until next time, be safe. The views and opinions expressed on this podcast are those of the host and its guest and do not necessarily reflect the official policy or position of the company. Examples of analysis discussed within this podcast are only examples. They should not be utilized in the real world as the only solution available as they are based only on very limited and dated open source information. Assumptions made within this analysis are not reflective of the position of the company. No part of this podcast may be reproduced, stored in a retrieval system, or transmitted in any any form or by any means, mechanical, electronic, recording, or otherwise without prior written permission of the creator of the podcast, Jay Allen.